This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hello, we're back, and you have more questions. Getting so many questions. This is, it's wonderful. And uh, we're just going to, I guess, keep doing question episodes where we respond to them. So let's just get to the first one. We have a listener question here from Mark. Hi, Nate and Tim. This is Mark from Culver City, California. I understand that there are three states of holiness. There's holy, clean, and unclean, also known as defiled. I have a question on moving directly from the state of defiled or unclean to the state of being holy. You point out that Jesus was, in essence, the quote-unquote most holy person in alignment with the most holy place inside the temple, also known as the holy of holies. And you point out that when Jesus touched and healed a very unclean person, then as a result, holiness won. And the contagiousness of Jesus' holiness trumped that of the contagiousness of the defiled object or person. My first question is this. Are you suggesting that Jesus made those folks holy or rather only clean? My second question is whether the Jewish understanding in Leviticus was that an object could move in one fell swoop from defiled to holy, or if it needed to first take a step of moving from defiled to clean and could only be made holy if it was previously in the state of being clean. If so, then that would seem to make Jesus' healings even more eye-popping to those around him, as well as more radical to those who viewed him as more than just almost heretical. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Mark. I think you and Tim are just smarter than I am. And so, Tim, okay, can you summarize what you think Mark is asking? Kind of went over my head a little bit. Yeah, so I think what Mark's asking, or what, what Mark is observing, is that the basic principle we we landed on, sort of tried to study and see what's the underlying logic here, is that there you can be clean or unclean, and then secondarily, you can be common or holy. And in order to move from being unclean to holy, those are the two extremes, you, you had to do that in two separate steps. You had to be cleansed, and then separately, you had to be consecrated or sanctified. So you had to become clean and common, and then you had to move from clean and common to clean and holy. And it, it seems to me like Mark is noticing sort of two sets of things. One is what we talked about. Uh, earlier on, when Jesus was physically in contact with people and the Gospels were paying attention to way, when Jesus touched people with his body, Jesus healed and cleansed people. So the, the lepers were cleansed and allowed to go back to the temple. Uh, the bleeding woman reached out and touched Jesus' clothes and was able to be healed and cleansed because of it. <clears throat> and the question is, Sort of like, well, did Jesus make them holy too? What are we talking about here? Is it is it the whole shebang or is it just one half of the equation? Okay, and real quick, remind me, what's the benefit of not just being clean, but being holy as well? Right, so to become clean, we talked about it was also a form of healing and and brought somebody back into their society and their right standing, right? So the bleeding woman and lepers, two perfect case studies, were completely exiled, ostracized people, uh, suffering people. And so the cleansing healing process, step one, essentially restored their life back to them. But they were just normal people. Remember, it was only the high priests who were made holy enough by clothes and oil and blood to go close to God. So that's the step two that 
in the Levitical system is incredibly limited. Only a rare few people ever get to be made holy. That's intentional because if too many people made <laughs> were made holy, remember, it'd be dangerous because their neighbors were defiled. So the holiness piece on top of the, the cleanness, that's like the extra credit, and that is the thing that allows humans to be close to God. So this whole picture, which we're talking about what Jesus did, is cleaned the whole world in order to invite the whole world to be close to God. So I think part of what Mark's sort of hinting at, or if not, I'll just throw the question out, is, is again the question of like, okay, what did Jesus' death do? This whole universal blood-covering thing, the destroying of sin, bringing people sort of in Jesus' body uh, to be with God— did that accomplish holiness? Did that just accomplish cleansing? Did it sort of do all uh, two at, at one time? I think the basic logic consistently is that it's a two-step process. In the Levitical system, the priests had to bathe to be clean, which is what a baptism is. It's a, it's a washing. They had to wash themselves to be clean, and then they were added all of the holy substances to become holy. Likewise, Jesus... And this is where it's tricky is blood, remember we said, can be a cleanser or a insulating, you know, holy-making substance. Right. Uh, it seems like the basic idea is that Jesus' blood largely cleansed people, cleansed the world, and prepared for a second step. So only one of the two steps appears to have been accomplished by Jesus' death. I think that's the basic logic which opens the door to like, what is that second step uh, and how does it happen? Which then we get into talking about the Holy Spirit. So what leads you to believe that only the first step was accomplished with Jesus's death? Yeah, so so remember the, the basic story, let's just go look at it. The most fundamental story I think in the New Testament uh, is the, the lesson that Peter learns from God through this vision with Cornelius. You kind of remember right. this scene. Yep that God has cleansed all of the things that Peter once considered defiled. Uh, this is the central story of, of the book of Acts. And I actually think if you, if you had to chop out a piece of the New Testament uh, as a summary of what the gospel of Jesus is, this story is the best that you, you could get. Um, so Acts 10 and 11, let's look at it. Do you remember the Newsboys song, I Want to Be Cornelius? <laughs> no. Uh, that's a kind of a deep cut. That's a deep track. The only time I had uh, Newsboys DC Talk uh, CDs was, do you remember those catalogs where you needed your parents' credit card? Oh, we've talked and about this you... on the show before. Yeah. Oh, we have? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I bought like 12, 12 Christian CDs by stealing money from my parents uh, when I got converted in youth group. And for the chorus. Cornelius. That's Cornelius by the Newsboys. Oh, boy. Okay, so Cornelius, Peter, Acts. So basic vision. Peter's hungry. (laughs) He, he, He falls into a trance, and then he has a vision. We can get into the details in, I don't know, 
season nine of uh, Almost Heretical. Uh, <laughs> now we're doing seasons all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the the base the basic gist there's a there's an image he sees this vision of a bunch of animals, reptiles, birds, mammals, and some of them uh, are defiled animals. Right? They're on the list of defiled food, defiled meat, uh, in Leviticus, and in the vision. Peter's like, no way, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then the voice says to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Mm. And then it's really interesting little fact, which you don't have time to get into, that this happened three times, which syncs up with Jesus telling Peter three times in the book of John to feed his sheep. Anyway, uh, food, triples, all that, look into it if you're interested. But basic idea Peter's entire life, all of his friends, his entire ministry with Jesus, we've touched on this, but I'll just repeat it. Jesus was kosher, right? Right. P- Peter, after spending years uh, of discipleship, learning from R- Rabbi Jesus, certainly did not think, okay, we don't, we don't wash our hands or we, don't, uh, we eat unclean food. We don't obey Levitical laws. Not at all, right? Like, it's not like... Uh, Jesus was breaking down these legalistic uh, Jewish laws. Here's Peter just following the the death of Jesus, proclaiming how uh, strictly adherent he is to kosher laws. Okay, so while a lot of people have wanted to interpret essentially acts in this scene and some things uh, Jesus says in the Gospels as like Jesus teaching his disciples to move beyond the Levitical codes. It's not at all what's happening. Instead, the idea is God is having to teach Peter a very difficult lesson because his entire life has been built upon these principles. And the lesson is not, again, this is another uh, very unfortunate character. The lesson is not these laws were always silly and you should have been ignoring them. That is not what is happening here. What's happening is the fundamental state of these animals has changed. Okay, not the law was wrong. Not the laws don't matter anymore. I never heard that the laws didn't matter, that the laws were silly. I think that's a little bit, maybe a little bit of a caricature because what I think is probably taught a bit more is that we don't need these laws anymore. I think that's a better, more fair explanation of the teaching. It's like now that Jesus died, we don't need these laws anymore. They're not silly, but they were never, they were never going to solve the real problem. That's how I've always heard it kind of explained. And this was, you're right, like this was a passage to go to. It's like, don't call something unclean that the Lord has made clean because of, you know, Jesus dying and that kind of thing. Does it think that's, I think that's a little bit fair? Yeah, but I think that if you were to dig into the question of, well, well, why is it okay to not follow the laws now when, when we had to follow them before? Uh, the answers most Protestant Christians give are, are not good. Uh, we'll save this. We'll have a whole uh, episode or, or short series of episodes on what Jesus was actually doing with the law. And as it's related to all this Levitical stuff, but it's too complicated for today. But so basic ideas like the the law has remained. Do not eat anything unclean, right? <laughs> the law hasn't changed here. What has changed is that the things that used to be unclean are now clean. In other words, cleansing has happened. That's been accomplished, right? But this only starts with food, and food's only like one small part of it. Where it moves, though, is that immediately after Peter has this vision, Cornelius (laughs) takes Peter to a room 
full of a bunch of Gentiles. And in verse 44, you read, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message in this room of these Gentiles. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Okay. That right there, that is my argument. If you had to pick one thing that encapsulates the basic message of Christianity, it is those three verses <laughs> and this little uh, two-chapter uh, vignette. So first, Peter has a vision about food that's been cleansed, and it's very shocking and scandalous to him. And it appears he doesn't understand the meaning of the vision. And it isn't until Peter sees what I'm going to say is step two, the Holy Spirit, that's the moment when God and humanity actually come to be together. It's also the moment, I think, when people are made holy. Uh, that step, when he sees these people receive the, the Spirit, we'll get into this. The reason the Holy Spirit has become the name for the idiom to describe the Spirit of God, the predominant language used in the New Testament, is its entire association is it is the spirit of holiness, the spirit that makes things holy. Okay, so the spirit is the thing that does step two. It consecrates someone. Uh, just as the oil and blood and clothes consecrated the high priest, the spirit uh, consecrates uh, people. It's also sort of this catch-22 where the people have to have been prepared to have the spirit come, come be with them. So it's when... The Holy Spirit comes to be on these Gentiles that Peter finally sees before his eyes, according to these stories, physical proof that they have been cleansed. Hmm. Because in his whole logic, right, uh, you have two, two parts of logic. One is that holiness and defiled things don't mix, right? You can't move from one to the other. And step two is Gentiles are defiled people. Like that is, that is the way they are framed. That is like their, their primary identifier is they are unclean outsiders. And so this is the evidence that finally breaks through to Peter uh, to show him that God really has made everything clean. And so you go to the next chapter, chapter 11, and there it seems repetitive, but it's really important. It's the chapter where then Peter goes and retells this set of events, the vision, the animals, Cornelius, this group, the Holy Spirit thing, he retells it in his own words of now that how he's made sense of it. And we see in verse 15, he's, he's recalling this part of the story. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning, us being the, the group of Jewish disciples. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, quote, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And then everybody listening heard this and had no further objections. This, according to the book of Acts, this is the lesson that creates the church, that, that opens the door to realizing that not only food, the, the nature of animals has changed, but every single human being on planet Earth has been cleansed and prepared to reunite with God. Because Peter just watched it happen in real time. 
right? So then they were like, let's just go out and tell everyone that they're all prepared and they can be close to God now. Exactly. And that's sort of the idea of like the church, right? Which is why that next section is talking about the church, the church in Antioch. Yep. And so Acts does this creative thing where where uh, you basically have the beginning of Acts is mostly about Peter with a couple sprinklings of Paul. And then in the center here, this is the centerpiece. Then you have uh, this like climax moment with Peter. And then you have Paul's climax moment of Paul's little uh, conversion moment uh, where Paul also has to learn a very difficult lesson. So they both have their lessons they have to learn that go against everything they're, uh, they're training with... <laughs> Their, tr- their Jewish training had led them to, even Peter's training with Jesus, right? So it's not like, oh, they're learning to be less Jewish. It's just this is surprising news that the whole world had been cleansed by Jesus's death. Uh, so, so Peter learns it, Paul learns it, and then essentially they're, they're stitched together literarily. And then the second half of the book of Acts is primarily about Paul. So you basically have Peter's story, Paul's story, and then these central few chapters where they're actually woven together. It's like Peter has been stitched to Paul. And so who is Paul? Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles is how he's framed multiple times. So Peter essentially learns this great lesson and then passes the torch literarily to Paul. Who? What does Paul do? The, the whole point is to go out and say, hey, there's nothing standing in the way of you being reconciled to God. Any human being in the whole world, uh, on the planet, there's nothing standing in your way. So all you have to do is, is receive that. It's an invitation, an open invite. And just to make sure I understand what the lesson is that Peter learned. And so I can summarize for our listeners too. So Peter saw that this group of people, these Gentiles had the Holy spirit and we don't know how he saw that they have the Holy spirit. Right. But he sees that they have the Holy spirit and he goes, Oh, I remember what the Lord said, John baptized with water. You'll be baptized with the Holy spirit. So if someone has been baptized with the Holy spirit, then that means they've already been cleansed. And that's sort of the if-then thing that he understands. And now he's like, okay, let's just go tell the world that. Because they're all prepared. Totally. To, to be with God now. Exactly. Yeah. So the whole logic of water baptism, and we won't get into, I'm sure everybody's got horrendous stories about, especially if you come from charismatic church world, about all the ideas about being, you know, receiving the second baptism and being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and if you don't speak in tongues and all that sort of thing. Uh, even though I know, Nate, you and I, we tasted that world, but that wasn't really most of our uh, church experience. But that's... <laughs> I never have spoken in tongues. I've never tried to speak in tongues. I don't think I ever wanted to speak in tongues. How about you? Uh, I haven't. We've talked about this on Utterly Heretical, I think. Uh, yeah. I haven't. I've been uncomfortable with it. I am trying to be open-minded to things and also not trying to... Um, pretend that I believe in things that I don't believe in. There's, but if you want to hear more than that, there's <laughs> go to our second podcast where we, uh, where we can have a little more unreserved conversations. It's over on Patreon. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. 
So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Okay, so for here, the whole logic of baptism and the entire premise of there being two baptisms is based on this two-step principle. Oh, so the first baptism is the cleansing, is a sign of like the cleansing happening. Mm-hmm. And then the second baptism is a sign that you're now holy because you have the Holy Spirit. And so you can be, you are close to God. Exactly. And what Peter's doing in, in Acts 11 is referencing that principle. He's saying, that's when I remember Jesus said this thing, that John was going to baptize with water first, and then you would be baptized with the Spirit. So he's recalling Jesus had had essentially given this framework ahead of time. There's going to be step one, cleansing with water. Step two, once cleansed, receive the the spirit of holiness, the holy thing. <laughs> okay, so there's here's where we're getting this thing where at some points these principles and logic are totally rigid, black and white. You can see them crystal clear. At other points, it's going to be a little messy and people are going to be a little more creative. I think the basic idea is Jesus's blood cleansed everything and therefore made people ready and able, prepared to become holy, okay? And holiness meant you could you could gain access to God. Now, the New Testament multiple times speaks of the Holy Spirit as the thing that sanctifies people. Okay. Right. So most, if you just track, and even if you just look up spirit in the New Testament. Oh, I did that. I did that today. Nice. Yeah. 27 uh, verses I went through and wrote down like some reflections of like how those things, I felt like those verses were used and how I interpreted those. Anyways, I don't have to get into all that, but I'm ready. Well, that's cool. Okay. So you weren't looking for this. I just told you, hey, we're going to start talking about spirit soon. Did you, so you weren't looking for this, but did you notice language of sanctification, consecration, holiness associated around this language of the spirit? Yes. I'm trying to remember. That's not, that's not the one that stood out to me the most. Um, it wasn't the most like, it didn't remind me the most of some of the things that I used to teach or was taught, but, but yeah, like I can't remember the one passage that, the one passage that talks about, um, like the spirit is the one that like makes you holy or completes the process or something like that. Am I, does that trigger anything for you? Yeah. I mean, so this could be second phase or for anybody out there, if you want to go do some homework, just do it, go look up the spirit passages and then notice the way the spirit is almost constantly referred to as the agent of making people holy. So the people, the Jesus people, come to be referred to as the holy ones, right? That's their primary uh, idiom describing Jesus' followers. And the primary idiom describing the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. That, that's not accidental. Like, those words mean particular things, right? We've talked about the word holiness and how it's just been sort of this general reverence word. It's yeah. like the special people. In the special. No, it means the people who have been made holy and the spirit who has made those people holy. Uh, so for, I'll just give one example. It's first Corinthians six 11. Uh, you see the same idea of baptism by water. It's cleansing 
just like the priests did, and then the Spirit is the agent of holiness. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What you'll see is this connection between sanctification and Spirit, and most of the time, I think, the connection between the blood of Jesus and cleansing holiness is mostly to do with the cleansing piece. So, okay, so think about this. You're washed and, yeah, you're washed in the blood. Exactly, yep. So it's a two-step process. You can imagine if someone knows, if if you know that, and I think this is kind of getting the Mark's question, that you have defiled people that are, in the end, they're becoming holy. Now, we know that that's two separate steps. First, they're going to become clean and common, and then they're going to become clean and holy. But if you know that the end of the road is a movement from defilement to holiness, you can imagine how someone might just shortcut the description of those two steps into one general process, sanctification, right? right? And so you do have a passage, uh, like in Hebrews 10, where it speaks of, and we'll get into Hebrews 10 because there's some, uh, some more fascinating stuff in there. So in Hebrews 10, it speaks of the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, uh, people. And so one way is looking at that and going, oh, like the author of Hebrews doesn't doesn't agree with this whole one-two process of cleansing and sanctification. Another way to look at it is go, this is just shorthand, right? <laughs> it's just summarizing that the the cleansing blood part was a what what is actually atonement, that that part uh and again, this is where it's messy because in, in the Levitical system, we looked at how blood can be used to accomplish both cleansing and consecration. Um, but I think it's just this shorthand uh, way of summarizing that both these steps are happening. And the end goal is for, for both things to happen. The goal is for cleansing, holiness, reunion. It's all of those things to take place. And so another one of the messy pieces is like, okay, so people are clean, because God made them clean through Jesus. That's the, the Peter lesson, right? Then the Holy Spirit, does does the Holy Spirit make them clean and then they can be with God? Or is the Holy Spirit arriving to someone, you know, the, the language of uh, coming upon someone, is that the moment where someone is encountering God for the first time in which they would have had to have been made holy already. And I just think these are good questions. They're fair questions. Um, and, and aligns also with the question of like, well, why baptism, right? What we'll see is baptism and the whole logic, the baseline instruction of, okay, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. That is the basic sermon of the early church, right? Is encapsulating this two-step process but wait a second, we just said everybody has been cleaned. Why do you need to be washed, right? Like why why do you need to wash yourself if the whole world is, is clean? Right. So for example, there's just one little fascinating thing and then we'll move on to another question. But uh, in Luke and Acts, which again are written by the same person as sort of two parts of a literary whole, uh, in Luke 24 and then in Acts 1, twice it's repeated that Jesus tells his disciples a command, a strict command after the resurrection, that they have to stay in Jerusalem until they receive the thing that Jesus has promised to give them, which we, of course, know that thing is the Spirit. Right. Uh-huh. And I think part of the logic there is that they're not supposed to go defile themselves. 
Uh, I could be wrong here. Oh, it's like a quarantine? Yeah. And so the question is raised, well, like, well, how could they defile themselves if the whole world has been made clean? Well, it's like, well, s- bodies still die, right? And there's still the idea of, potentially, still the idea of defilement. Um, and potentially what baptism is for is to like renew your cleanness, right? If you're just walking around in, in the world or stumble upon uh, a corpse, like you could renew your cleanness. That's one option, right? So in that, in that view... Um, defilement can still happen even though Jesus has cleansed the whole world, but it's like small scale defilement and baptism is enough to accomplish it. Okay. That's one idea. Second one is that, uh, the whole world has been permanently cleansed and baptism then is just a sort of symbolic acceptance of, of that cleansing, which is probably closer to I think how most Protestants think of, of baptism, right? Is it's like purely symbolic. That's what I was told. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although I, I know there are a lot of Protestant traditions that don't want to think of it in terms of a purification. And some of them is for good reason. I remember my church is because purity was all about purity culture. And it was, and we knew it was toxic and it was hurting people, and, but we didn't have other frameworks for purity, right? Or for purification. <laughs> and so right. we sort of wanted to just get rid of purification in general. Um, so, so we made baptism more about other symbolism, life and death and resurrection, that sort of thing. Did you ever hear the, the line like, it's the outward sign of the inward change? Yeah. Yeah, that I heard a lot. Totally. No, I mean, think about it. So we, we don't need to get into the details of baptism, but... Like, how much you, you recall the idea of washing hands and arguments about washing is all over the New Testament, right? Uh, Jesus turns essentially baptism buckets of water into wine at a wedding. Like, the idea of, of purification cleansings is all over the New Testament. And it's because it was such a significant idea uh, in the Levitical system. And it was a part... Wait, how do you know it was baptism buckets? It, says, it specifically says it was water for cleansing. Oh. How do you know that's not just like cleansing, like everyone needed to wash their hands, buckets of water? No, but that's the thing, is we think baptism is different. Because we made up a word, which is baptism, by simply not translating the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> the the Greek is baptismo. Okay, so you're saying people literally needed to get clean. It's just washing. If they had a shower, they could have taken a shower. It's a bath. Baptism is a bath. But a shower is more effective because you're not sitting in the filth. <laughs> yeah, but we have running water. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I said if a shower was available in their day and age, yeah. that probably would have been the They'd best. Take a shower. Okay. But that, so really, like you're saying it's, they just needed to... Literally. Yeah, this is one of those where it's like, just, we need to understand this. <laughs> this isn't some spiritual made up. Th- it's, it's a bath. It's a wash. It's a cleansing. So you're saying it's not, it's not just symbolic. It's not only symbolic. No, it's loaded with symbolism. Everything is loaded with symbolism, uh, but it's not just symbolic, right? So it, would it make any sense for everybody Jesus was living life with, including all the, the people who ended up writing the New Testament, to have spent their entire lives participating in various kinds of cleansing uh, practices that they went to great detail to figure out how, when, for how long, at what points of time, what behaviors had to be bookended by cleansings and washings and all that, for Jesus's final act with his disciples to be cleansing their feet 
And then somehow like baptism is disconnected from all that, right? And it's like this new <laughs> made up symbol, right. right? So, okay, so think about this. Uh, I didn't even have this in my notes, but it's it's totally fundamental. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Like we use that as this, uh, it's one of my favorite things the church does is the celebration of the humility of Jesus, right? And humbling himself to take on the role of a, of a servant washing his, his followers' feet. Mm-hmm. But we've also uh, detached that from all of <laughs> the cleansing uh, ideas that are loaded into that. The whole point of the foot washing, and remember, uh, you, you may not remember the exact line, but you'll probably remember the gist of it, is, is Jesus frames that whole thing of like, you don't know what I've done for you. And who does he get in an argument with? <laughs> with Peter. He's like, you don't know what I've done for you. And you don't understand, right? It's the whole like, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my whole body. They get into that little debate. All right. The point is, Jesus says, remember uh, one thing he, we talked about last time? If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Mm-hmm. We'll see the idea of like, if you, don't, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. What does that mean? It means cleansing is an important step. But it says, Jesus knows, they're not going to understand what he was doing until he dies. Until afterwards, this is again one of the things the Spirit is, is the Spirit that comes and teaches Jesus' disciples what they weren't understanding ahead of time. When does that happen? That happens when Peter learns that what Jesus was trying to talk about all along was cleansing the whole world and cleansing them so that they could be with God. So even the foot washing scene is connected to Pentecost. It's connected to this whole idea that what Jesus did was cleansed everybody so that that God could be with everybody via the Spirit. And the, there, again, the same logic is at hand. If you're not cleansed, you can't have the Spirit, right? That's what we talked about. If the, if the whole world wasn't made clean, like there can be no Pentecost, there can be no church. Uh, and it was true on an individual level and it was also true on this massive, massive corporate level. So there's no way that baptism is disconnected from all of those stories and ideas uh, and the whole thing. So then it just, if you zoom in on the details, you just get to the question, which I think is is sort of related to Mark's question, then we'll move on. It's just the idea of like, well, okay, is baptism like, do we, do we literally need to be cleansed again, right? Do we really need to take a bath? Yeah. Is this celebrating that Jesus already cleansed us? Is it somewhere in between? And I don't know, you, you all can answer those questions for yourself. Um, but the, the principle is pretty clear that it's a one-two punch. And really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to go through these multiple steps to do is to be with God. Fascinating to think that maybe baptism might have just been we need to take a shower. Like That's <laughs> kind of fascinating. And it could be symbolism that goes along with it. But yeah, that does uh, seem to fit in with some of the things we've been talking about in this series. So that's kind of cool. Okay, let's get to the next question. It's from a listener named Jack. Hi, Nate and Tim. This is Jack from Princeton, Illinois. I had a question after listening to episode number 88, Atonement Must Be Universal. You mentioned that what Jesus accomplished cleansed the entire world, including the people who crucified him, believing that they were doing the right thing. But imagine that one of the soldiers knew it was wrong and didn't speak up, knowing it wouldn't do any good. If the sacrificial system only covered accidental transgressions, 
Doesn't everyone get a free pass except the one weak soldier with a conscience? Have you ever heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss? God seems okay with leading sheep who occasionally stray off the path, but it seems like the more you know, the more dangerous and narrow the path is, up to and including being triggered by the word disciple. I know I'm missing something crucial, so if you have any thoughts about this, I'd love to hear them. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Jack. That immediately reminded me of the whole philosophy that some people would bring up of like, maybe it's better to not tell certain people about Jesus, because if you go to that you know, island and tell those people that have never heard about Jesus before about Jesus and they don't accept and aren't they worse off than before? You remember this rationale? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I think, you know, it's basically is drawing off, I think, Paul's language of, you know, in former times people were in ignorance. And uh, and so it's the idea of like to <laughs> to hear the gospel and to reject it or to like, you know, think the guy that presented the gospel to you was a total jerk and you're uninterested. Uh that that was going to be way worse than if you had never heard, right? And so you would be sparing people um, if you didn't tell them. I don't know which I, which I think is sillier, that or the, like, everybody's going to hell, so we got to get out and tell everyone. Yeah, and I don't think that's terribly connected to Jack's question. It was just what came to my head. So, okay. <laughs> It is terribly connected. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, just sh- short answer on, the, on this one, Jack, is I think the question is, is a fair one. This is a good point, in my view, to just say, like, here's another case where um, we have to have the skill of knowing when to take things very literally or woodenly and when to sort of back up and see things a little more softly or or figurally. And so I think this is just one of them of like, I don't uh, I don't actually think that John or Luke, when they're writing and I, th- you know, if if they're making these subtle allusions to the ignorance of uh, the villains in the story, so that that Jesus's death, like we said last time, could be framed in a way that cleansed every character in the story, right? Uh, even the bad guys. I don't think doing that subtle literary uh, creative work is the same thing as like John and Luke actually believed that God could only reconcile with people who only ever did things truly ignorantly. Does that make sense? Like, I think what we see here is more about these authors signaling us to the texts that that we all have, have in common, which is the Hebrew Bible, what now is stitched to the New Testament as the Old Testament these texts of the book of Leviticus, right? I think it's an allusion to those texts and the ideas in those texts more than it is evidence that that John or Luke believed that only ignorant sins could be forgiven. Does that make sense, Nate? So it's not like a direct tie in saying like, picking up on that logic and saying, so that's why every person that didn't know they were committing a sin has been forgiven for the, it's more just saying like, Hey, remember that thing back from the Levitical system? Like this is tying into that. Yeah. You can't take it too like strongly or something. That's my thought on it. And I, and I think, you know, even if I'm wrong, I think part of what you're bringing up, Jack, is that ignorance is bliss is a terrible philosophy to live by. (laughs) Right. So we certainly don't want to like, build a theology, uh, certainly not like a rule, a theological rule or a religious uh, rule 
based on this idea. Um, but I, I think it's more of this subtle literary creativity happening. And again, this is uh, the, the complicated thing. Leviticus and, and all of this stuff is a good case study. We haven't yet gotten into the, the real details of it. But every writer over the course of these hundreds of years, from the New Testament to the redactor of the Old Testament to the original writers of texts like pieces of Leviticus or the, some of the priestly codes or whatever— just felt and believed really differently about the world. So even though they're picking up and tracking with some of the same ideas, something eventually we'll need to talk about is the way that they may not still believe the same things to a T or as woodenly or as uh, scientifically rigidly as earlier writers did. And so, for instance, this is another example. Uh, the authors here could be referencing this idea of of accidental, uh, ignorant behavior being able to be cleansed without necessarily like having any fundamental belief about the importance of of <laughs> accidental sin and cleansing right uh, they could make that illusion and make that connection to say something about Jesus in a creative way without necessarily have having themselves believed what potentially the author of those codes Believed. I mean, in a way, that's kind of what we're doing with this show and this series in particular to say, like, we don't necessarily think this is the way the world operates. And we talk more about that kind of stuff over on Utterly Heretical. But we do think it's important to get into the worldview of what the biblical writers had to better explain maybe what they believed was happening um, and, you know, and use that for our own purposes to understand our faith better, to understand our spiritual journey better and maybe the ways certain things were used you know, that were harmful or didn't help us. Um, and yeah, so I think there's some similarity there between what they're doing and maybe what we're doing, if that's true, if that's what they are doing. Right. And I think in this example, my view is that what they were doing was using a, an idea that they probably didn't make much of, this idea of the, the ignorant sin thing being able to be cleansed. They use that idea because it's in the text, in order to make an idea that was very important to everything we're talking about, which was that, that Jesus made the entire world clean, right? Of course they care about that. That was what the book of Acts is about, right? We just read the story. This, this is the main lesson of the church. So they just used an, another old principle based on a, a couple verses in these old texts to do that. So I do think it's possible that these writers are are tapping into old ideas, paradigms, verses, passages, whatever, laws, to make statements even without necessarily believing in the fundamentals of those passages or laws that they're using uh, to do that. Hey, Nate and Tim. It's Matt from Hagerstown. And I was just wanting to ask a question about John 14.6, um, Jesus saying that he is the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him and wondering how that relates to supersessionism. Yeah, it sounds an awful lot like the temple system never worked and won't work, and Jews are invalid. And that's not something I'm comfortable with. Um, so I was just wondering what you guys' take on that was, what you would interpret that verse as, and I think that's it. Thanks. Yeah, it does sound a lot like that. Yeah, and I'm equally uncomfortable, Matt. So thanks for bringing that up. 
Um, this passage was one of many that's in my notes to circle back on and probably was going to forget about. So, uh, so thanks for the question. Okay, so let's, let's think about this. So Jesus is the bridge. And then, according to John, that's part of how he sets up the whole gospel. And then later he presents Jesus as saying, you know the way to the place where I am going. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so Jesus is now here saying, I'm the only way to get somewhere. And John has earlier had Jesus saying, I am like the ladder or the, or the stairway, the mode of transportation stairway between, to heaven. between the two realms, right? Exactly, that's the stairway to heaven. Yeah. So I, I think some of this is like, some of it's the inflection it's like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? <laughs> or is it like, I'm the way? And, and the other part is, what do, we th- what do we think in our imagination Jesus is pitting himself against? And I think 99 out of 100 Protestants read it and say, Jesus is the way and the temple system isn't. Or Jesus is the way and Judaism isn't isn't mm-hmm. right like that's it's jesus competing against his fellow jews like i think we just that's the supersessionist intuition or the lens i think that is problematic and that many of us are uncomfortable with okay so it's not just the i am the way but i am the way but there's still that second line of like no one comes to the father except through me yeah so okay so let's read this in light of jacob's ladder real quickly and then we'll go to an, another question that i think will connect to this okay Do you remember Jacob's reaction when he sees a stairway connecting heaven to earth right next to him and angels descending on the stairs? Do you remember what he was feeling? Does he say like, how awesome is this place? Because like the Lord's in this place and he didn't know it. Yeah, except that if awesome is in any of the English translations, it would be, <laughs> be a terrible word choice. He's horrified. That's the NIV. He's, does it say awesome? Let me see. It says awesome. Have you ever used the word awesome in a negative sense? <laughs> um, I don't think so. <laughs> Have you ever word, used the word awesome to explain how scared you are? <laughs> that, that grizzly bear that just chased me down the trail was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, we called, you called Disneyland awesome, not grizzly bears. Okay, he's terrified. The The word is is fear, how fearful, how terrifying, how horrifying. Uh, it, it's just, it's a noun form of the word to fear or be afraid, okay? So he's literally, it says he was scared and said, how scary is this place? Like, <laughs> that's his reaction, okay? Mm. It has nothing to do with, again, we have this sense of like, I don't know where it comes from. Like, actually, I've never mind. I, <laughs> I always have opinions about where things come from. Um, someone wrote to us about uh, Tozer Pursuit of God, and I want to get to it on a future episode, so I won't ruin that. Okay. Um, okay. We have this. Make a note. We have this silly sense that it's all this like happy clappy. We want to be with God, right? And if just we made the right decisions, or we're like moral enough, or we were like worshipful enough, then we would have those moments. That's not at all the framework of where these texts are coming from. They're coming from a framework of meeting God is terrifying. The most common thing that needs to be said when there's a divine encounter is don't be afraid because the 
common reaction is absolute horror, okay? Not because those beings look really scary, which I think is always what I thought with angels is like, oh, an angel looks really scary or some divine being looks really scary. It's not just that. You're saying it's because they knew that they weren't clean. They were defiled and some they weren't holy. They couldn't be in the presence of this thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's at least, that is what is overtly stated in, for example, the Isaiah meeting, right? And he says, woe is me because I'm unclean, right? So it wasn't just that the thing had six wings or something or a bunch of eyes. I mean, that'd be weird, but that, that wasn't the main thing. Right. And it's the idea, uh, same assumption underlying all of this, is that the world isn't ready to be reconciled with God. Things need to change first. And so the first, the first thing is just to say that Jacob's ladder isn't a good thing, right? It's not, a, it's not an evil thing, but it isn't inherently good. It is inherently scary, right? It's a good idea that there would be a reconciling bridge, but if the right precautions aren't taken in advance, it actually presents fatal, lethal, terrifying uh, possibilities, which is, again, why God didn't just build a bunch of ladders around the world, right? right. Like why all of these things happened. Uh, and so the, the first piece is just to, to say that, like frame this all in a, in a more um, reserved uh, idea that, what Jesus is is claiming when he says he is he is a portal to heaven, he is the way to get to the Father. It's not just it's not like everybody else was like, come to me and you can get to God. He's he's essentially saying like something as as radical as Jacob's ladder appearing in the wilderness is is possible now through through me. That isn't in opposition, this is the second piece, that is not opposed to what the Levitical system was doing. The Levitical system wasn't saying that. They weren't making that same claim, is what you're saying. Um, it, it was, the Levitical system was allowing all of the people to be with God by a, by a select few, the high priests going close to God in the temple, allowing God to be constrained within a the temple or tabernacle so that everybody could be sort of close, but not, not really close. Right. And the point was, what's the opposite of like a, a staircase or a, or a bridge without any like obstacles to, to travel. It's a, a set of boxes, right? The Levitical system was the opposite of an open road. It was a, a set of constraints, containers to limit contact with with God. And so so one way of saying this is like Jesus is is not in competition with the system. Now there's a whole set of things happening with the temple and Jesus essentially being a, a political uh, commentator who is looking at his fellow Jews and you know it's that that line uh, the, the just like heartbreaking line of oh Jerusalem if only you knew today what would bring you peace. And he's predicting and predicts in the Gospels that they will go to war with Rome and the temple will be destroyed, which we know happened, right? right. Um, I'm sure lots of people were saying that same thing of Jesus, of like, stop <laughs> stop trying to fight Rome, not because Rome's good and you should just like obey them. Um, but if you do, we're all going to die. Um, there's that whole political thing going on in the background of these texts too, in terms of the temple and Jesus's uh, supposed opposition to the temple, Right. But like you got to pair with that opposition to the temple that like Jesus heals the lepers and then sends them to the temple. Okay. Jesus isn't anti-temple. He's not anti-Leviticus. He's certainly not anti-Judaism in, in, in any way. And so 
that's just one one way of saying like there are some different ways to to look at this that I do not think Jesus is in opposition to uh, the priestly system. He is saying he's doing something more powerful, more universal, more effective than what that system was doing, but it's a, it's trying to accomplish the same thing that system was accomplishing, which is allowing people to to be with God. Right. Just notice the way all of these things are connected. So remember we said blood was special because life was in it, right? The divine life was in blood. It was a vessel of life. And then Jesus says here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember we talked about why Jesus was special. He was a special substance just like blood was special because he had the divine life, all of it, all of God's substance in him which connects to that whole strange thing of like, you have to eat me. And if you don't eat me, you will not have life in you. And then the spirit, which is the spirit of life, the breath of life, like all of these things are connected, like eating bread for communion or drinking wine and having the spirit come into you and all of this being connected to eternal life, like should just remind us of something we touched on last week. It's all about not dying, (laughs) right? Like, the, the point is that Jesus has the, the thing that allows people to escape death, whether that's the other side of death, right, by means of resurrection or, or by escaping death. Just another way of like this stuff, the importance of, of life and the way that all these different symbols are interwoven is here even in this, in this passage. It makes a lot of sense that what Jesus is doing is somehow providing an answer for the biggest question that humankind has ever had, the biggest fear that humankind has ever had. Right. Yeah, this is actually kind of relating to another question we got, which I think we should do next episode. This will be the tease for next episode. It's this question about what would Jesus have thought the role would be for the temple system then after he did his thing, you know, what's the, what is the role of the temple system? Because some answers to that over the course of history have been pretty horrible and can lead to some really, really bad stuff. So we want to give that its own episode to kind of talk through that. And we will do that next time. Thanks for being with us, friends. We will be in your ears next week. If you can, go ahead and drop on over to iTunes. Leave us a review. That's always helpful. And if you want to contact us, have any questions, want any information on the show, go ahead and head to our website, almostheretical.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.